great songs about the grace of God and surveying the wondrous cross. We've just remembered our Lord's death and the amazing grace that was seen in that unbelievable act. This morning we're going to amplify upon that a little bit more because God presents himself as someone who is bestowing so much goodness and has done so right by the world and so right by his people that he comes along and then begins a a warning and says, but don't receive the grace of God in vain. The Apostle Paul said that to the Corinthians as he wrote to them and gave them that warning, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 1. Do not receive the grace of God in vain. And we get a good picture of what that looks like in Isaiah's prophecy. In Isaiah chapter 5, you'll notice that Isaiah begins to sing a song. He begins in this prophecy and he says, I want to sing to you a song about a vineyard and the beloved. In translation, God and Israel. God has something that he has done for the people and he begins this great song imagery. And notice in those first couple of verses, as was read for us in Isaiah chapter 5, is that here is God the beloved and he has this vineyard. And look at all the things that he's done for the vineyard. It says there he found this very fertile hill. And in verse 2 it says he dug in it and he cleared all the stones out of the way. He planted it with the very best and choicest of vines. He put everything in there to make every preparation for this great vineyard. In fact, you see some really beautiful images about how God perceived this vineyard, how he perceived Israel. Notice there it says there that he built a watchtower in the midst of it. Here is God with his people. And he also had a high expectation of the fruit that would be born of it. You notice in verse 2, he puts a wine vat in it as well. And so here is God as he now finds the best of the land. He plants the choicest of vineyards. He clears every stone and rubble out of the way. He puts a watchtower in the midst of his vineyard and puts a vat in there as well. And he steps back and he says there at the end of verse 2, I looked for grapes. I looked for the fruit of my labor. And rather than receiving the grapes that ought to have come from this vineyard, he says at the end of verse 2, instead, it yielded wild grapes, sour grapes. They were worthless grapes. And what God does is he stands back and says, "Uh, how could that have possibly been? Look at all that I did for you. There is no excuse for this vineyard to have turned out worthless fruit. There's no reason for it in the slightest. God has shown himself to do everything that is possible on his end, took every action needed so that this vineyard would produce the grapes that the beloved was looking for. And after all of that effort, he says, I looked and behold, sour, worthless grapes. And I think the question that now God is essentially posing in verses 3 and 4 is he says, judge between you and me on this, Israel. 
what can possibly be done? What more could I have done on my end, Israel? What more did you expect of me? Such that you don't produce the fruit that I expect. And to put it in a spiritual question that I believe that God is asking there, what more can be done for the people of God when a total work of grace has been lavished upon them, and yet they act as if grace never touched them? That's the problem in this scene. First two verses. Do you see all that I have done for you? Do you grasp what I've done? The question in verse 3. What more could I have possibly done? And now God simply says, why has this been a waste upon you? How could this possibly be? How can you act as if nothing's happened? How can you act as if God hasn't done anything for you? How can you not have changed lives? How can this vineyard not be producing the fruit that is expected? And so God then simply says, so what do you expect me to do now? And I would like to pose the question to you. Suppose in your yard you decided to grow some kind of fruit tree. You picked a very choice place. You cleared out all the stones and cleared out everything, kept all the weeds out of it. Made sure everything was set just perfectly. You bought the most expensive plant that you could have bought. And you tended to that plant on a daily basis. And you gave it the nourishment it needed. And you gave it the watering it needed. You gave it the pruning it needed. You did everything that you could possibly do for that fruit tree. And when the fruit came out, it was garbage. Awful. Disgusting. Useless. What are you going to do to the tree? And that's what God says. What would you do? God says, what do you expect is going to happen, but I'm going to abandon such an unprofitable venture? You're not going to keep investing into the tree. You're not going to continue to go, well, maybe if I give it a little more TLC, it'll be better this time. It's a worthless tree. It didn't work. You did everything that you could. There's nothing you could look back and say, well, maybe that was the problem. Here's God saying, I know I gave you every advantage. I did everything I could possibly do for you. And when it produces nothing, there's nothing left to do but to rip it out. And that's what God says now in verse 5. I'll tell you what I will do. I'll remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or owed. And the briars and the thorns will grow up. And I will also command the clouds that they will not rain upon it. What else could be done? God says, I'm going to rip away all of my blessings. I'm going to rip away my protection. All that I was doing for you in my loving kindness and grace, I'm not going to do it anymore. It's a wasted venture. It's a worthless effort. You see that in everything that we do in life. Is there anything that you do in life that you invest so much time into it that it doesn't produce a thing for you that you continue to invest so much time into it? No. From finances to anything that we do in life, if the effort that I put in is not bringing the result I'm looking for, I will stop putting the effort in. 
I will find something else. I will do something different. I will no longer give to this anymore. And so God just says, so judge between you and me. What do you expect to have happened? And now the rest of the chapter is God explaining, here's what went wrong. Here's what happened to you. I looked for a fruitful people. I looked for people who appreciated my kindness and goodness and graciousness. You didn't do that. Instead, look at the things that you've done. Verses 8 through 12 describe the first problem. And it is simply this, that they were failed to regard what God had done. They didn't care. Verses 8 through 11. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitants. For ten acres of a vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have their lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of His hands. Quite simply... They're consumed by worldliness. Notice all the things that are described. Oh, they seek to adjoin house to house. Here is this accumulation of wealth. They're more concerned about the things of the world. They're consumed by drunkenness, it says. They're out there pursuing after wine. You're getting a visualization of Israel as not concerned about what God wants, not concerned about what God has done for them. Instead, they're simply concerned about What's going on in this life? What more can I have? What more can I consume? What more can I acquire? What more can I enjoy? And the problem is is that they are unable to see the hand of God. They are unable to see that God is working in their lives. And that's why the scriptures give us this, this picture. And there's a neat contrast that the Apostle Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 5. Don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. There is something that you're supposed to be consumed by. You're not supposed to be consumed by the ways of the world. You're not supposed to be consumed by alcohol, consumed by worldliness, consumed by wealth and riches. We're not supposed to be consumed by anything but a pursuit of God. Be filled with the Spirit. He says, I look to my nation, I look to my people, and I didn't see it. And unfortunately, I think what happens is that we get so focused on this world, so focused on what needs to be done today, so focused upon the here and now and the physical, that we lose sight of what God has done. It is why we need the Lord's Day. We need reminders. We need to draw our hearts back to the cross, like George prayed, every minute. We need that constantly because we get swallowed up and consumed by this world. And it causes us not to bear fruit that God's looking for. 
And so he says to them, you need to watch yourself. This is what has happened to you. I would like to put it another way and simply say it, it kind of boils down to this, is that we often get so focused on the blessings that God has given us that we lose sight of the one who gave them. We so enjoy what we have. And we so much spend our time in all of those different pursuits that we fail to give God the glory, the one who gave it to us. We ignore the giver and are consumed by the gifts. I know you appreciate that when your children do that. you imagine if your children do that? Consumed by all the good things that you do for them but don't care about you. Just give me toys. Give me more presents. Give me a car. Give me stuff. Make me happy. But I don't care about you. You understand the insult that God is projecting here in this chapter. Unacceptable to see all that God has done and for us to say, thank you for the toys, but I don't have time for you. I enjoy the things of this world and I'm consumed by my pursuits, but I have no passion or care for you. The second picture is in verse 13. Verse 13, therefore my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry and their multitude is parched with thirst. They don't know me, is what God says. The reason why that they are fruitless, the reason why this tree is born worthless grapes, even though that God has done all that he can do and has poured his grace out upon the people, is because they do not know God. And let me then say something quite obvious. You have to know God. Consider how often God makes that complaint in scriptures. They don't know me. They don't know anything about me. They don't have a relationship with me. They have no concern for me in the slightest. They don't follow me. They don't know my laws. They don't know my character. They know nothing about me. The reason why we fail at being what God wants us to be, the reason why we fall into the fruitless category, a way that we then take the grace of God in vain, is because we don't choose to know God. We don't want to know Him. We don't want to know what He has to say. We don't want to spend time learning about Him. We don't want to get to know God's laws. Think about what the Apostle John said. He said, whoever says, I know Him, but doesn't keep His commandments, is a liar. And the truth's not in him. But whoever keeps His word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. An amazing reminder here to us. It is so easy to think that we know God. We'd like to say that we know God. But do we sincerely know Him? Do we truly have a relationship with Him? And know what He has to say? And know His character? And I submit to you that is why we have what is in your hands today. This is the essential purpose of God's laws is it reveals who He is. 
It reveals everything about him. The laws that I give for my household reveals my character, reveals my thinking. It teaches my children something very important about the direction that I want for them, the standards that I expect of them. It reveals everything about who I am and everything that I stand for. And God's laws do the same. To get to know God's laws and His Word is to get to know God. In fact, there is no other way to get to know God. We're not going to get to know God by just sitting around doing nothing, hoping to get to know Him. We're not going to get to know God by staring at the clouds as they pass by. There's only one way to get to know God. You have to know through what He's revealed. He's told you all about Him. But do we want to know Him? Is it our concern to know Him? And I believe that God's argument is this. When you've seen how gracious I've been for you, gave you the choices of lands, planted this vineyard, cleared away the stones, kept the weeds away, gave you every opportunity and every blessing, why wouldn't you want to get to know that one? Why wouldn't we desire to get to know this great God? If we're truly moved by anything that we've done this morning, from anything that we've sung in the words that we've sung and in the memorial that we've kept, if we truly have any movement to that in the slightest, then it means that I need to get to know this great God who's done this for me. How can I not want to get to know Him? And so God says to Israel, judge between you and me. Look at all that I've done. Why don't you know me? Why don't you seek me? Why don't you build a relationship with me? Number three, verse 18. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near. Let it come. That we may know it. What a great uh, blast that Israel receives here from Isaiah. Here is, is, is Isaiah saying, you know, the problem is you don't even see what you've done to yourself. You don't even see the consequences of your sin. Do you see the imagery there in verse 18? Woe to these people who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood. There's this enslavement imagery that is going on. You're dragging your sins all over the place. You don't even see that you're burdened by the weight of your sins. You don't see the damage that your sins are doing. And he just pictures these people just dragging the burdens and the weights of sin. And he's saying, what are you doing with that? Isn't it the immense lie of Satan that tells us sin would be freeing and liberating? This is what you need. This will set you free. This is what is going to set you to your happy place. And you're going to be comfortable and convenient. And it's going to be wonderful if you'll just do this thing. And God says, open your eyes. The sinful life is burdensome. It is weary. It weighs you down. It wrecks your life. It destroys you. And it is being pictured here that way. We make 
our pursuit of God all the more difficult when we maintain our sinful life. We're making it so much more difficult when we continue to pursue sinful activities and then pretend like there's not going to be the consequence of that drawing us away from God. And then we sit back and wonder why things are so difficult and why it's so hard to have a relationship with God. And why is it that I'm not able to draw near to Him? And why am I not able to get over these weaknesses and sins? And many times the reason is because we voluntarily and willfully maintain sinful activities that we know we should stop, but we just enjoy them too much, see them as freeing and liberating, and don't see them as the weight and the burden that is dragging us down in this life, preventing us from having the relationship with God that He wants us to have. And so there's an obstacle between us and God. And rather than clearing that obstacle, we maintain our sinful activities. And we reject the grace of God. When we think that we can keep doing what we're doing, keep on sinning, keep living the life of self, keep doing what seems best to us, we're throwing the grace of God away. and We're saying that we have no concern for our God who's done so much for us. That's what Israel had done. Israel had thrown all those things away. Israel had said, yeah, I know you've given me all these blessings. But I prefer the life of the world. I prefer the weight of sin. I prefer to have my life wrecked by my decisions. Rather than be the choice vine that you've tried to grow me to be. It doesn't make any sense. And that's why God says, I don't understand your choice. Verse 20, look at what the people have done, number four. Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Quite simply, there's been a moral perversion, a moral inversion that has occurred. They are going around saying what is good is not good. And what is right is not right. Things that are holy are now unholy. Things that are sinful, they're fine. Essentially, not accepting the moral standards of God. We don't believe that what God has said is the absolute standard for moral guidance and truth. We live in a time right now, especially, where at best, God's Word... His moral standards are at best a mild suggestion that need to be converted to the 21st century and updated. And that's at best. Do we believe that God has given His laws and this absolute moral standard for our good, for our benefit, that He is the Creator and knows what is best for His creation? Or as verse 21 says, or woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. We know better. That's why I have to quit watching the news anymore. Anytime they ever talk about, well, don't we need to drag the Bible into the 21st century, kicking and screaming, and update it and modernize it because it's so outdated. No, 
You don't. You need to update your life and conform it to the Word of God. God's moral standards have not changed, and they were given for you for your good. I don't care if it's 4000 B.C. or 4000 A.D. God's Word is the standard. And we are so haughty in our eyes today that we know what is best. We have the moral standard. This law is antiquated and outdated. Adultery is fine. Divorce is fine. Shack up together is fine. It doesn't matter. Live how you want to live. This is just, you know, who knows why that's there. Puritanical slavery. That's all it is. That's all it's proclaimed in one. Woe to those who call good evil, who call evil good. You think this is something new? You don't think the people in Israel's day, back here with Isaiah, are going, yeah, the law of Moses is really antiquated and outdated. That thing is almost, oh, almost a thousand years ago. Got to get with the times, get with the program. Come on. There's nothing new under the sun. We need to humbly submit to God's laws as being right for us. They are good for us. They are useful to us, not a constraint to us, but for good life now and for eternal life. Woe to those who alter and pervert the moral standards of God. Finally, by simply rejecting the laws of God outright. You see it in verse 24. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as the dry grass sinks down into the flame, so the root will be as rottenness, and their blossom will go up like dust. Well, why is that, Lord? Why are you destroying everything? Why is it all going to be ripped apart? Why will the root be rottenness, and the blossom just turn to dust and ash? Verse 24. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts. They have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. What a picture. It is not by surprise that Jesus repeatedly described his disciples to be as those who hunger and thirst for him, for his kingdom, for his word, for righteousness, for holiness. Here's his picture. Either you despise the ways and the words of God, or you recognize it as the living fountain of life, and you pursue it at all cost. And you give everything you can give to drink from those words. That's why David could say those beautiful words in Psalm 19. The law of the Lord as he proclaims it being perfect, reviving the soul, pictures it as sweeter than honey, even the honeycomb. How do you do that, David? Because you see God's word as giving life. It restores It renews. It breathes life into these dead bones. And we see that he's the only place to find it. 
Every other pursuit that we're doing in this world is a pursuit of death and only continues the decay of our spirits. Only the life-giving fountain that Jesus offers brings life. Don't despise the holy word of God. Don't reject it. Seek it. Pursue it. Love it. Spend your time in it. Because that's what disciples of Jesus do. And that's what God expected of those who've been planted by Him. I want to give you now one thought for the end. How do we remain then in God's grace? What can we do proactively now to remain in His grace, to not be caught throwing away the good riches and graciousness of our God. I want to bring us to Romans chapter 8 for our finale. Romans 8 verse 1. He's writing to Christians. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I think probably every month I tell you I have a new favorite verse. This one's the verse of the month for me. Okay, What great words. There is no condemnation. We do not receive the deserved condemnation when we are in Christ Jesus. Everything that we ought to receive, we will not receive. And everything we should not receive, we will get when we are in Christ Jesus. Listen how he continues, verse 3, By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin... He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Here is this picture. He sent His own Son, condemned sin in the flesh through His life and through His death, so that we will not walk according to the flesh. We won't live like that anymore. But we'll walk according to the Spirit. Now listen to verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. To be like the world is to put your mind on the world. To be like those outside of God's grace is to be thinking about anything but that and acting as if we're not a part of it. But those who live according to the Spirit sent their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now listen to verse 6, because remember, he's writing to Christians. He just told them, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 6, for to set the mind on the flesh is death. You've been moved from death to life. There's no condemnation. You have received restoration, renewal. You've come from the death of sin and have been made alive in Christ Jesus to then set the mind back on the ways of the world and go back to the flesh, God says, is death. You've gone right back to your prior condition. You've received the grace of God in vain. You've thrown it aside and counted it as nothing. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. When we continue to seek 
after the world, consumed by worldliness, participating in the things that we've read about from Isaiah 5 this morning, he says, we stand hostile to God, enemies of God. We've thrown away the grace of God that says no condemnation because you're in Christ Jesus. And he says, you're now hostile to me again. Verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. What more can God do for us? Will there be any charge that we will be able to lay before God on the day of the end? That we'd be able to say, well, if you had only done this, that's, that's the difference of why I didn't serve you. Here's what was lacking. Here's why I didn't produce the fruit that you were looking for. What charge will we lay at the feet of God and say, you've done something insufficient? God is looking for fruitful, life-bearing fruit. People that are servants of His, who do not receive the grace of God lightly nor in vain, but appreciate it, are changed by it, renewed by it daily, and live changed because of it. Do not receive the grace of God in vain. Come to your Lord Jesus and submit to Him with all of your heart and receive His grace by turning away from the worldliness, no longer consumed by sin, by passion, by the world, and instead be filled with the Spirit, consumed by the ways of God. Be immersed in water to have those sins washed away. If you've already done that, and you're the picture of what we see here in Isaiah 5 or Romans 8, You've come to His grace, you've received the grace of God, but you've cast it aside. You're not living how you ought to live. You're not putting Him first anymore. Instead, you have been captured by the things of the world. I'm begging you today to dedicate your mind, your heart, and your life to change that this very moment. Do not receive the grace of God in vain. Do not cast it aside. Do not despise what the Lord your God has done for you through Jesus Christ. Turn to Him. Repent of those sins. Pray for forgiveness. Confess those sins to Him. And if you need help in doing that, you can talk to me afterward. Grab somebody here because we're all in that fight to continue to press on the higher calling of God. Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?